Welcome to the Federal Society's Practice Group Podcast. The following podcast, hosted by the Federal Society's Financial Services and E-Commerce Practice Group, was recorded on Thursday, February 28, 2019, during a live teleform conference call held exclusively for Federal Society members. Welcome to the Federal Society's Teleform Conference Call. This afternoon's topic is Federal Reserve Independence. My name is Wesley Hodges, and I am the Associate Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call. Today, we are very fortunate to have with us Mr. Alex Pollock, who is a Distinguished Senior Fellow at the R Street Institute. Also with us is Mr. Norbert Michel, who is a Senior Research Fellow for Financial Regulations and Monetary Policy at the Heritage Foundation. After our speakers give their remarks, they will have a back and forth, and then eventually we'll move to an audience Q&A. So please keep in mind what questions you have for the Fed, for some of their remarks, or for one of the speakers individually, and be ready to present your question at that time. Thank you very much for sharing with us. Alex, I believe the, the floor is yours to begin. Thank you very much, and many thanks to the Federalist Society for hosting this discussion of, of what is obviously a very important issue. Of course, in recent times, or the last few decades, we have all heard about Federal Reserve independence, and the idea has been endlessly repeated uh, that the Fed must be independent. Uh, but this is, uh, is not an obvious conclusion, and historically, the opposite opinion has often been prominent and often been the reality. I'm going to take the questions listed in the invitation in order, in case uh, you want to follow along. So, one, should the Federal Reserve be independent? No. No part of the government, no part of the government in our constitutional republic should be outside the system of checks and balances uh, or outside of serious accountability. A phrase from Alan Sproul, who was a longtime president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York in the 1940s and 50s, uh, is... Uh, appropriate here. He said, the Fed is independent within the government. Independent within the government. That's masterfully ambiguous. Uh, But it's clearly not the same as independent. It's related to the idea that you can be both independent and accountable, if you can figure that out. Uh, William McChesney Martin, uh, who is the hero of Fed independence to many people, uh, and, uh, and who is considered because of that, by President Truman to be a traitor, uh, was chairman of the Federal Reserve from 1951 to 1970. Uh, Martin interpreted independence within the government like this. Here's what he uh, testified to the Congress. He was careful to frame his arguments in terms of independence from the executive branch, not from Congress. It's clear to me he said, that it was intended the Federal Reserve should be independent and not responsible directly to the executive branch of the government, but should be accountable to Congress. I like to think of a trustee relationship to see the Treasury does not engage in the natural temptation to depreciate the currency. Well, uh, the Treasury is the biggest borrower there is, so of course the Treasury has the natural temptations of borrowers. Question two, is Fed independence a political or a technical question? Well, it's a political question. 
Money is always political, and Federal Reserve actions always have political effects. Uh, like over the last decade, taking money away from savers so you can give it to speculators. Uh, those are political actions. Three, has the Federal Reserve been independent historically? Well, often not. Uh, in the beginning, the Federal Reserve Act in 1913, the original version, made the Secretary of the Treasury automatically the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board. So that's a pretty clear indication of what they were thinking about in the beginning. Uh, the Federal Reserve Board in those days met in the Treasury Building, and it did until 1935. And, is, and as uh, reported in one history of the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve Board members felt degraded and humiliated by the Treasury Department's treatment. The Fed was made an adjunct of the Treasury Department rather than an independent body. That's talking about the 19-teens in the early days. During World War One and again during World War II, the Fed was the servant of the Treasury, uh, financing or buying the bonds needed to finance the war. In World War II, they explicitly bought as many bonds for the Fed portfolio, as many bonds as was needed, to keep the interest rate down to 2.5%. Then along came the Korean War. President Truman and his Secretary of the Treasury, John Snyder, wanted to continue this arrangement that the Fed made sure it was financing the government for the war. But the Fed wanted out. Uh, this was the famous debate that led to the Federal Reserve Accord. But this debate in 1951 was under, a special, uh, under especially difficult circumstances because by then we were losing the war in Korea and retreating down the peninsula. Truman is confronting that, trying to finance the war, and here was this Federal Reserve trying to raise the cost of borrowing by the government. I, I have a lot of sympathy for Truman there. This led to a very public dispute between Truman uh, between the Truman administration, including the president himself personally, uh, and the Fed, which brings us to the next question. Has a U.S. president ever fired a Federal Reserve chairman? That got quite a bit of play recently. And the answer is yes. Uh, Truman effectively fired Federal Reserve Chairman Thomas McCabe uh, as part of this, at the time, uh, famous public dispute. Truman told McCabe that, quote, his services were no longer satisfactory, and McCabe resigned, and that's uh, about as, as close in substance to being fired as you can get. In the next decade, the 1960s, uh, President Johnson did not try to fire William McChesney Martin, but we find this uh, interesting uh, occurrence. In late 1965, the Fed raised short-term rates, Alarmed by signs of inflation after tax cuts and the war in, and the war in Vietnam's ramping up, President Johnson summoned the Fed chairman to his ranch in Texas. There, Johnson physically shoved Martin around the living room, saying Martin didn't care about the boys in Vietnam, according to historian Sebastian Malaby. That's quite a scene to imagine. Uh, next question. Who should determine the definition of money? The Constitution clearly assigns this responsibility to Congress. And in the Federal Reserve Reform Act of 1977, Congress told the Fed, as one of its key mandates, 
that it was to seek stable prices, quote, stable prices, unquote. The Fed on its own changed this mandate to a commitment to perpetual inflation instead at the rate of 2%. Uh, in one of the open market committee's debates of this idea, one of the members suggested the Fed ought to ask Congress what they thought about that. But this suggestion was not taken up by the committee. Lastly, uh, question six, how much faith should we put in the judgments of the Fed? Well, very little. Since these judgments are obviously really guesses, they should inspire as much faith as any other bunch of guesses about the economic and financial future. And as we know, the Fed's forecasting record is as bad as everyone else's is. In summary, uh, you should believe uh, in a completely independent Fed only if you believe that there should be platonic philosopher kings who preside over economics and finance. But who in the world would believe that? Thank you. Thanks, Alex. Uh, unfortunately, anyone listening in for debate on this topic uh, with different sides is going to be disappointed because <laughs> Alex and I are are very much on the same page uh, with this issue. There's a there's an excellent book out, and I'm not I'm not getting anything for saying it's a good book. But Sarah Binder and Mark Spindle have a book out in the last couple of years called The Myth of Independence. You know the the title is pretty much something that I've used in the past. So, but I think a lot of people view this as as independence as it as this thing that the Fed has, and it's true that, in fact, it is a big myth. If you go through the history, just sort of like Alex did, and then even deeper, the Fed's never been independent politically. It's never been completely independent of Treasury. It's never been completely independent of Congress. And the, the Binder and Spindle book have a lot of uh, a, a lot of the, the congressional part in there, uh, so it's good for that. But if you go back through, just even the administrative on the administrative side, there, there's an even more expansive list than what Alex has gone through. President Eisenhower pressured Chairman Martin to increase the money supply, and Martin didn't want to. Uh, Eisenhower pressured him, and it was sort of a resign or reconsider your position, and Martin reconsidered. The I think maybe a little bit more known, well known within our circles anyway, are is the President Nixon uh, and Arthur Burns spats, or, or not really spats, but their collusion uh, on one of the famous Nixon tapes. Nixon and Burns uh, openly mock and, and laugh at the idea that the Fed was independent. <laughs> and uh, Jimmy Carter found William Miller uh, as uncooperative. So he replaced him. He moved him over to Treasury. So maybe that wasn't really looked at as a firing, but he moved him out of the Fed, you know. And then, and then if you go into the Volcker years, you know, I think, and I think that's probably where this is just my supposition, but I think that the the, the sort of modern view of this this independence is probably a lot because the, the Volcker Fed has this great reputation as killing inflation and, and so on. But if you go and you look at this. Uh, closely, this was not an independent Fed. This was a Fed working very closely with the administration. The the, the Fed acknowledging that they needed the support of uh, of the administration to do what they were doing, which in fact makes sense. Uh, so that's that's not independent at all, and under any normal definition of the word independent. And then you know, just to fast forward to the the 2008 crisis, this is one that I think 
needs needs to be discussed more frequently. Look at everything that happened uh, between Ben Bernanke as Fed chair and Tim Geithner as Treasury secretary, um, uh, or New York Fed president and Treasury secretary Paulson. I don't know how you could possibly call the Fed independent, you know, throughout any of that time, and and much of that was not strict pure monetary policy. Much of that was emergency lending. But most of it was done in strict um, strict compliance between the two, Treasury and the Fed. And this is, a, as you know, a time period where the balance sheet blew up like crazy. And, you know, you don't have that without some agreement uh, on policy between the administration and the Fed. And I think the, the point that I'll make to finish that one off is that this actually works out great for Congress because they have – two people to beat up on now. They have the administration and the Fed. And they can posture and they can they can gripe at the Fed and what the Fed's done and they can gripe at what the administration has done, even though the ultimate responsibility does lie with Congress. So it's a way for them to shed accountability, Congress to shed accountability. And as we've seen Throughout history as well, when we try to talk about making the the Fed more accountable, uh, whether it's through Congress or whether it's through some other rule that would that would sort of separate them, uh, Congress balks at that, and it's always a political fight. And I think you'd have a really good case to make that Congress wants to have that buffer. They want to be able to bring the Fed chair up and. And yell at him or her for whatever they for whatever they want to yell at them for, and anything that has gone wrong in in any way, um, they can they can do that if the Fed is supposed to be independent, right? So they want that, and you know if we're talking about things like federal debt, federal deficits, unemployment. These things are always going to be political. So I don't know how. Uh, you really get away from that, um, but I think you. I think if you go back to even Milton Friedman, Milton Friedman was on record as saying, "Look, this is a fiction. We should make them part of Treasury. If you don't want to make them part of Treasury, make them more directly accountable to Congress." Um, so, in terms of what should happen, I'd be happy with either one of those two, and I think I'd even lean more towards the side of Treasury because. It is very much as I, as we as Milton said, it is very much a fiction um and sort of an accident or a maybe not it's an accident, maybe it's a political it is political that they're not on budget. What the Fed's doing is not on budget, even though they're holding on an entire an enormous amount of US debt. That's probably where I'll cut my my time off right there. I think I'm pretty close to my seven or eight minute opening. Norbert, let me just say I agree with what you say, and it's certainly true that complaining and taking accountability are two different things. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, and thank you, and thank you for filling in the in the history so well. Because of course this is, as you say, the the steady pattern oh, yeah. uh, over time. I have two Definitely. quotes uh, here that that might be good. The, the second one is Burns, since you mentioned uh, mm-hmm. Arthur Burns. But uh, the first one is uh, is said to be a story that Mariner Eccles, who was one of, also one of the great a long-serving Fed chairman is said to have loved this story. He asked a central banker from another country, do you feel your bank has the right to defy the government? Oh, yes, the central banker replied. We value that right very greatly, and we would never exercise it. (laughs) 
that's one. And the second one is a is a is a famous Arthur Burns line, uh, which is about Fed independence. Uh, we can't exercise our independence for fear of losing it. <laughs> I love that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the, it is clear in here. There's a is a uh, a political matrix because, uh, as I said, money is inherently political, uh, yep. and the whole big political uh, part of uh, of the history of the United States was it was devoted largely to debating. Uh, the politics of money, and part of the outcome of that was was the, the original uh, Federal Reserve Act, uh, mm-hmm. as as we know. But in the uh, when when you're in some kind of of a crisis, uh, then somebody has to take responsibility, and then you get this this group, as you were saying, like the Treasury, mm-hmm. the Fed, the leaders of Congress, who do things under under pressure. So this. Yep. Brings me to a thought, which is the Fed should be independent, except in times of war, crisis, or economic challenges. <laughs> <laughs> except every every day. <laughs> well, there no. we go. well, and and I, I do. I think that that's you know that the, the politics part, the the politics of this has a lot to do with why we don't see some sort of stricter monetary policy rule. And why we don't get rid of the silly mandate that we have, in, you know, with Congress, um, because it, it might sound paradoxical, but a good way for the Fed to not have to deal with political pressure would be to restrict them to following policy rules. But Congress doesn't want to do that. Well, then the writer of the rule is responsible. That's right. And they don't want to do that. <laughs> And Congress doesn't want that. Congress wants to be able to uh, to browbeat them, and that's what's going to keep happening. I think. I mean, I just don't see is the even though we would have better monetary policy, uh, I, I just you just don't see that, don't see that coming. I, I mentioned the natural desire of the Treasury as the biggest borrower for low interest rates, cheap financing costs, and and having the Fed uh, buy. Its bonds, which of course the, the, today the Fed owns huge amounts, as we know, of uh, of Treasury bonds, a couple trillion dollars uh, worth, and they those are all long. This is this uh, was one of the the really radical parts of the quantitative easing program that, that, that they, uh, at least in current terms, it's radical. It was going back to the World War II pattern, where they mm-hmm. bought the long bond to keep the rates down. Uh, but in between, we had a Fed which believed in the bills-only doctrine, which is they should buy all, right. all Treasury bills, the argument being that was the least economically or financially distortive uh, vehicle you could use. The, the amount of Treasury bills, I was just looking at the Fed's current balance sheet yesterday uh, and noticing the amount of Treasury bills as a short-term mm-hmm. securities they own is zero. Zero. Yep. And and they own all these these long bonds, and of course they also own a, a ton of mortgages, um, mm-hmm. which which was much more radical. But in principle, we can say, in principle, a central bank can buy anything, and central banks have done. The, the Swiss National Bank right now is doing uh, owns lots of equities, uh, and they're big buyers in in the U.S. stock market, for example. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, they, uh, a central bank can buy mortgages, it could buy equities. Obviously, many buy gold. The Fed owns zero gold. Many central banks own gold. And, um, and, and if you think about what complete independence would mean coupled with the notion that you could be using your balance sheet uh, to manipulate any financial sector, that's, that's a pretty daunting uh, thing to yeah. imagine. Yes, in a democracy, one would argue, <laughs> would not want such a situation. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I wouldn't want it. No, no, absolutely not. You have a, a completely uh, isolated group in that they're not elected and they're not going to face voters, essentially allowed to run a large bank uh, for the speaking government. Of, speaking of that, we ought to mention something you and I have discussed and actually testified together on, uh, which is the notion that the Federal Reserve or central banks in general should be allowed to have deposit accounts with the public. Oh, yeah. Anybody, which is just like... In principle, they could buy any asset. In principle, they could make commercial loans. In principle, they could finance your charge card. That's right. Uh, just like there are today financing your mortgage. In principle, once you have the, technically the possibility of running large numbers of accounts, any number of accounts of any size, uh, you could imagine the Fed having accounts directly from you and me and businesses and universities and and. Uh, mm-hmm and local governments and anybody, and becoming uh, the monopoly uh, bank of the country. Because who wouldn't choose to put your money in the Fed instead of someplace else? As, as you and I have discussed, but that that's actually, if you had a completely independent Fed, which decided that it wanted to do that, that would also be a, a daunting uh, yes. possibility. And it's technically possible. It is technically it is technically possible, and it is, it is even seriously discussed now in many policy circles, and it's a horrible idea. I think <laughs> it's, it's it completely usurps any sort of private banking sector in the long run, because you're not going to have obviously private banks willing to compete with the federal government running a bank. I mean, that's just it's uh, it's a terrible idea. It conflates monetary and fiscal policy even more. But it is actually something that is seriously talked about among some academics now. We hear proposals for things like central bank digital currency. It's really important to pay attention to the fine details, the fine print of those <laughs> of those proposals, because some of those are exactly what Alex is talking about here, which is it is uh, sort of like you have a debit card with the Fed, a Febit card, I think, is <laughs> a term we could use. And... <laughs> It is literally having the Fed compete with commercial banks, um, which is so far beyond anything even envisioned by the founders of the Fed, and it's completely unnecessary and harmful in the long run. Um, I think among some of our friends that might be obvious, but against again, it is actually not obvious again uh, to many other people, and it is being seriously considered by some. Yeah, that's a good uh, good point. Uh, one of my favorite sayings is, many things which were previously considered impossible nevertheless came to pass. Uh, and things, things that the founders of the Fed would have considered impossible nevertheless have come to pass, like yeah. the Fed being the biggest owner of mortgages yeah. uh, in the country. Indeed. Uh, so... Uh, Things which start off as mere ideas can can come to pass in time if you don't pay attention to them. No doubt. And, you, you know, look, 
even this is getting maybe this is getting a little bit too far uh, into the weeds, but with a completely independent Fed, another thing that you or we could see this is a very real possibility is the Fed shooting for permanent inflation at an even higher level than what they've what we've already got. Oh yes. Uh, you know, that's again, John Williams, when he was in San Francisco, started talking about that. And that's a very real possibility. And there's really nothing to prevent the Fed from saying, well, price stability now is constant, low, steady inflation. And we think it's 4%. And it might have seemed incredibly far fetched in the 90s and into early 2000s, but it's not so far fetched right now. It's a great irony, isn't it, that the 2% inflation target, which was invented in New Zealand in the mm-hmm. 1990s and then adopted by most everybody else, had as its whole point getting inflation down to 2%. Right. <laughs> right. It, it was an excuse for reducing inflation right. for everybody at that time. Yep. And, and it, had be, it has become transformed into a reason for increasing inflation. That's a yep. nice historical a, irony for us. That's a great point. There really is. Well, Wes, maybe we've worn ourselves out. (laughs) Very good. Something tells me you have some more gas in the tank. But let's go ahead and open the floor to to questions, everyone. Let's go ahead and go to our first caller. Hello, this is uh, Will McCauley in Washington, D.C. I appreciate you, too. I'm putting this on today. I did want to ask, how does the Fed today in level, in terms of its independence level, how does it compare to the Bank of the United States that was around back in the 1800s? Is it you know, a wholly different animal, or can you kind of compare the independence level that the two institutions uh, have or did have? Very, very different animals. I know that some people will sort of gloss over this, and and I actually I'm not sure. Maybe Alex will disagree with me, but I, I've heard many people gloss over this and say, "Well, we sort of had a central bank with the Bank of the United States, but we had nothing like a central bank with the Bank of the United States. There, there it was not. There was no macroeconomic policy. We were still on the gold standard. You, you did not have credit allocation for the nation in the same way. Very, very, very different animals. First of all, let me say I think that is a really great question to think about. And of course, there were two. There were two banks of the United States. Hamilton, that's right. The Bank of the United States, followed by the the second bank. And they were both commercial banks. They were partially government owned. The boards had government representatives and also private capital on them because Hamilton's principle was that you couldn't the bank wouldn't behave responsibly if there wasn't large private capital at risk and of course the fed legally has shareholders who are private shareholders namely the commercial banks but those but they don't have any ownership rights in those shares to speak of so they're they're different cases yeah. but but it's intriguing actually to to speculate on i think the better analogy for the banks of the United States is not the Fed, but the government-sponsored enterprises like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Uh, The the banks of the United States were, in my mind, a lot like Fannie Mae. And if uh, if you read Andrew Jackson's veto message, when he vetoed the rechartering of the Second Bank of the United States, it it, it reads uh, in its key parts like a wonderful indictment of Fannie Mae. That's something I enjoy a lot. <laughs> that's a great analogy. Oh, that, that's that's a very good point. They're much much more uh, it's much more appropriate, I think, to look at them that way. Well, very good. Thank you so much, caller, for your question. While we wait for any more questions from the audience, Alex Norbert, I. 
I have just two words I want to present and see what your thoughts are after that. Interest rates. <laughs> I know everybody wants to, to talk about interest rates, and I think that obviously interest rates are important, <laughs> but I think that we've we've fallen into a trap where we sort of we we've we have this sort of popular notion that that the fed just makes interest rates whatever they want and i think you kind of even see some of that coming out of the white house you know the, the well the fed just made interest rates too high or the fed's made inter- or they have they we want them to make interest rates lower and you know depending on what the the market equilibrium rates are the fed can try all they want to raise or to lower rates, and they're going to have the opposite effect. And it's not the case that they simply make interest rates whatever they want. That, that's been one of my pet peeves. Of course, they have influence over them, and of course, they're important. But whether rates are going up or down, it depends on conditions in the market as well as what the Fed's doing. It's not the case that they simply just program in whatever and get whatever rate they want. And it's actually quite dangerous to think of it that way, I believe. I have a few thoughts. Of course, there's... Um... The, the financial markets treat Federal Reserve opinions and moves on interest rates as market-moving events, and that's what makes them most important is that, in fact, the market moves around based upon them because everybody thinks it will move around. Mm-hmm. One of those uh, paradoxical nature, uh, paradoxical things about financial markets. But interest rates, we need to make at least two distinctions. One is long rates and short rates in a in a bills-only Federal Reserve world, uh, focusing on the federal funds rate, the, the direct object of the Fed's uh, targets were short-term rates. If you get into a quantitative easing world or a World War II world, the direct object is long-term rates, which you can influence by being a big buyer, being a big bid for long-term bonds, mortgages, or as we said, in principle, uh, anything else. I think William McChesney Martin was right that there's more distortion in resource allocation and in economics uh, from trying to manipulate the long rates uh, than there is from the short rates, although both are important. The other distinction is, of course, real rates versus nominal rates. The real rates, just think about the nominal rate minus the inflation rate, are now up to more or less zero, a little over zero uh, on the short run, and have were run at negative, real, uh, short-term rates. Getting when the nominal rates were close to zero and inflation was two percent, that gives you a negative real interest rate of two percent, a, a real interest rate of minus two percent. That's very distortive to financial markets, and has something to do with what has been uh, wittily called the everything bubble. But the other thing it does is it robs money from savers uh, and gives it over to people who are leveraged, who who get basically free financing of their levered positions. When I when I mentioned in my comments that everything the Fed does is political, you you couldn't get more political than that, robbing the savers to enrich the speculators. Well, thank you both for your thoughts on that. It looks like we do have two more questions in the queue. So next caller, you are up. I'm trying to understand a little bit about how interest rates affect and impact the deficit and the national debt. It's my understanding that when you increase the when the Fed increases the interest rate, that would also increase the the rate that the interest rate that the uh, Treasury pays. 
and uh, will affect the annual deficit and consequently uh, affect the national debt. And if I'm right about that, and hopefully you'll enlighten me, then why do we blame the President and Congress for the deficit when the Fed has a big impact on what the deficit will be? I mean, that, that's kind of what I was getting at there. I mean, this is, this is um, you know, it, it is true that the Fed has an influence over credit markets and therefore interest rates. But, you know, but again, I would caution everybody that it's not the case that the Fed decides, oh, I know what we're going to do. We're going to make interest rates go up to 4%. <laughs> Um, it just doesn't work that way. And, you know, you can think about it as sort of like the general return rate of return in the economy. If the, the economy is more productive and, and things are looking up, you can earn a higher return in the economy in general. Interest rates are going to go up. And if it's not because of inflation, which the Fed is definitely responsible for, then that had nothing to do with what the Fed did. And the Fed could even be raising their target as interest rates are going up. And all they're really doing is following rates and maintaining the supply of credit at the demand that that they're that, that the that is in the economy. So it's not the Fed's fault. And I'll be even blunter, because Congress and the and the administration have uh undertaken so much debt if interest rates go up, the Fed might not be able to do anything about that. And the fact that interest rates are going to go up is going to increase the deficit even more by requiring higher interest payments. I discussed, uh, well, that, that's right. I, uh, I discussed the dispute between uh, Truman and Secretary Snyder and the Fed, which was going on in 1950, 1951, um, in my comments. And th that dispute was precisely about the question you raised. Namely, from the Treasury's point of view, the Fed was going to make financing the government more expensive by stopping from buying uh, mm -hmm. government bonds and letting their interest rate rise, and, and they, didn't, they didn't want that. And that's a, that's a classic tension uh, between the Treasury as, as borrower uh, and, and the central bank as worrying about inflation. Now, one thing we should mention here is if it, to the extent that the debt is owned by the Federal Reserve, it's a little bit different. So there's all the debt in the rest of the world, mm -hmm. uh, internationally and domestically, uh, held by all various private parties. But there's the debt held by the Federal Reserve itself. And on that debt, the Federal Reserve gets the interest rate from the Treasury, out of that interest rate, spends whatever it wants on its limos and buildings and everything, and then gives it back, gives whatever's left, which is almost all of it, 98 or 99 percent, and gives it back to the Treasury. So to that extent, uh, uh, the Treasury gets back from the Fed mm -hmm. uh, w what the Fed paid, and that's that's a tricky part of this uh, of this equation. So what percentage of the national debt is held by the Fed? Well, the Fed's got a couple trillion, and the uh, and debt held by the public is, what now, Norbert? 18 trillion, something like that? I think that. it's just under 20, yeah. So 10 something north okay. of 10%, I guess. Don't believe our memories. You got to just go. You can easily find the numbers. But it's, a, it, it's a material. It's a material amount. Yeah, and you were going to say mortgage-backed securities. 
Right, which technically are obligations of the U.S. government now, even though that's not on budget. So if you wanted to count that, then it would be higher. I know that at some point in the aftermath of the crisis, the total that they held was up to around a third, just under a third. So it, it varies a little bit, but it's it, it's substantial. The mortgage-backed securities and the Treasury uh, bonds together that the Federal together. Reserve owns total $3.9 trillion as of now. Well, very good. Thank you so much for your question, caller. We do have another question in the queue. Here's our next caller. This is Bob Popper in Washington. Um, I've heard from you all the things that the Fed's not supposed to do, and, and you know, it sounds right to me. So a simple question you know, what is it supposed to do? I mean, I, I take it that <laughs> it will increase the money supply so as to keep prices stable. I take it that it will provide liquidity in times of runs on banks, although I've heard that even that's not necessary, and they never had runs in Canada during the Great Depression. So, you know, true. What, if if you were defining it, what would you make it do? Alex, do you want me to go first, or do you want to go? You, you, you go ahead, and then I'll then okay. I'll tell you what I think the six mandates of the Fed are. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if I were came for a day, <laughs> but but I was but we were stuck with the Fed, and I had to say, well, what are you going to do? Then I I would tie it to targeting uh, a nominal spending metric. So I don't think price stability in in and of itself is the right goal. Um, there are some times when prices should fall. Uh, it depends on what productivity is doing. Uh, if overall productivity is going up, prices should be coming down. And price stability works against that. Um, so that distorts markets. And another way of saying that is that sometimes mild deflation is good uh, and price stability prevents that. Uh, certainly the way they've defined it. So I would come about this uh, and say, basically, the only thing the Fed can do is handle nominal rates, or I'm sorry, nominal variables, and the one that requires the the, the least amount of, uh, or, or I'm sorry, the one that requires worrying about the least amount of things that it can't know and 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 fixes the sort of knowledge problems that we face with data would be something like a nominal spending target. So that's what I would do. If you uh, look back at the original Federal Reserve Act, it defines the purpose of the Fed uh, very uh, correctly as uh, allowing an elastic currency. An elastic currency was the term of the time. What does that mean? That means when you get in trouble, lend people money so that you finance the crisis. Uh, Or as an old saying goes, the private banks finance the boom and the central bank finances the bust. Uh, that's quite accurate. It turns out, uh, or we also know that as the lender of last resort, it turns out the Fed actually is very good at being the lender of last resort, as it was in the last crisis and ones before that. So the the original notion was elastic currency, lender of last resort, and being the sole people who can print up money, in fact, they can do that. Now, Doing it well may may be a different question, but that's for sure. If you go along to the act I mentioned, which is the Federal Reserve Reform Act of 1977, that's the source of the famous dual mandate of the Federal Reserve. But the dual mandate is really a triple mandate because what that act says is the Fed has three mandates, stable prices, again, not steady inflation, stable prices, 
maximum employment, and the third, which everybody always forgets about, according to the Act, is moderate long-term interest rates. Yeah. And I suppose it's always forgotten because nobody really knows probably what that means, moderate long-term interest rates, but it's but it's in the black letter law. So that gives us four so far. Uh, but there are two more. The next one, the fifth, is the Fed's job is to be the manager of the banking club, is, is the way that Charles Goodhart, a great uh, student of central banks, put it. And that is, I think about the Fed, that's one of the most important things it does. It, it keeps the banking system going along and, and tries to manage the behavior of the banking club, especially the big banks. And finally, sixth and most important mandate of the Fed is financing the government as needed. This they never talk about because it's sort of embarrassing to them. But in fact, it's the biggest thing that all central banks are there for. And it's why every government has a central bank, because it makes financing the government when you need it easy. You just sell the bonds uh, to the central bank. The central bank prints up the money. This pattern goes all the way back to the foundation of the uh, Bank of uh, England in 1694, I think it is. Uh, It was in the history of the Fed. The Fed made its reputation by financing the First World War and then the Second World War and subsequently. And it's doing it again now, as we talked about, to two point two and a half or something trillion dollars uh, of of financing the government. So that's that's my list of the of the six things the uh, the the Fed does. Well, thank you. Just a quick follow up to Professor Michael. Nominal spending of what? Who's nominal spending? Ag- aggregate spending, total total spending in the economy. And otherwise known as GDP. So not real, but nominal. I mean, I know this kind of gets a little wonky, but um, I mean, basically, we wouldn't want doing, that, Norbert. <laughs> it's too late, I guess. But it, basically, it's it's saying not just targeting the price level. It's 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 the price level. It, it's prices times real output. So it's the total nominal spending that you get in the economy in aggregate, and that I I would argue would be a better a better outcome. And um. I, I would prevent it from doing a lot of the things that Alex is, that, that are its mandate, as Alex has correctly pointed out. Well, very good. Thank you very much, caller, for your question. We appreciate the back and forth there. I turn the mic back to Alex and Norbert. Do you have any uh, further thoughts you want to dive into before we wrap up the call today? I guess I'll just I, I'll elaborate on where I ended there just for a second because um, – I'm, I'm, I'm anticipating that someone is still listening to that, um, but what what I would what I'm going for there with with what I'm with what I'm saying about targeting nominal spending is I'm going for a neutral arbiter of the money market. So I I don't want the Fed to be juicing the economy. I don't want it to be crushing the economy. Um, I don't want it to be buying whatever federal debt there is, whatever you know. Uh, financing the deficit. I want them to be supplying the amount of money that the economy needs, but not more than that and not less than that. You know, so to be a little bit more particular, I believe that the best way of doing that is to use a a nominal GDP or a total nominal spending kind of target because I think that that's most synonymous with supplying the amount of money that 
the demand is requiring, that money demand is required. And it, it's an approximate thing. It's certainly not perfect, but I do think it would be better than what we have. My final thought is to tell a story which Norbert has heard before, but it, but it's such a good story. We need to think about it. Dionysus, the tyrant of Syracuse in ancient times, got into debt to his subjects, uh, the way sovereigns often do, and ran out of money and couldn't pay his debt. So he uh, regally proclaimed a law that all of the money, that is to say the silver coinage, in Syracuse had to be turned in to him upon penalty of death. Once, according to the story, once he had all the silver in hand, he took every one drachma coin, re-stamped it two drachmas, and paid off his debt. And in doing so, he became the father of all central banking. <laughs> Beautifully put, Alex. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's a good story. We do want to thank Alex. Norbert, thank you so much for being here today. On behalf of the Federal Society, I'd like to thank you for the benefit of your valuable time and expertise. We welcome all listener feedback by email at info at fedsoc.org. Thank you all for joining. Our call is now adjourned. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this practice group podcast. For materials related to this podcast and other Federalist Society multimedia, please visit the Federalist Society's website at fedsoc.org slash multimedia.